What's up, everyone? Yes, it is I, your host, Natalie Morrison, and you might be thinking, wasn't this called Swim Masters? Well, yes, it was, and you're definitely in the right place. We decided that we wanted to give the podcast a bit of a makeover, and we're so proud to introduce to you Revoicing the Future, a Women of NAM podcast. Don't worry, it's still the same content, still the same hosts. We just wanted to take this to the next level. And we're excited that you're joining us on this fantastic journey. The episode that you're currently listening to was recorded before the name change. And I just wanted to let you know that you are in the right spot. So keep on listening. Be sure to subscribe and stay tuned for all new episodes of Revoicing the Future, a Women of NAM podcast coming soon. Welcome to Swim Masters, a podcast dedicated to help connect, grow, and support women in the music products industry. I am your host, Natalie Morrison. The Smart Women in Music Fund was established in 2018 by Robin Valenta, Dee Dee Hyde, and Crystal Morris to expand diversity, inclusion, and support for women in the music product space. Twice a month, I will sit down and host virtual conversations with various women across our industry to help foster mentorship and growth. Now, without further ado, Let's dive in. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to Swim Masters. I'm your host, Natalie Morrison, along with my trusty sidekick, Stephanie Lamont. Hello, everybody. Can't wait to be here and to share this with you today. Woohoo! We're super stoked for this episode. Um, little fangirls, <laughs> yeah. or a little bit of a fangirl moment for us. Just a lot. <laughs> um, but you've probably heard us mention multiple times about this book that we have fallen in love with. Um, it is called Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle mm-hmm. by Emily and Amelia Nagowski, and we got the opportunity to chat with Amelia herself about her experiences, and I mean, Stephanie will go into that a little bit more, but for those who don't know who Amelia is, she is the co-author with her sister of this New York Times bestselling book. Her job is also to run around waving her arms and making funny noises and generally doing whatever it takes to help singers get in touch with their internal experience. Yes, that is what her (laughs) bio says. Um, And she currently lives in New England with her husband, one cat and two rescue dogs. Yay. Yep. And all that, all that to say, she has a doctor of musical arts and choral conducting. Um, and I just love how she articulates that. Um, and yeah, so it was, it was fantastic. We got one, this book has absolutely like not no joke and not being really extra and dramatic. It has changed the way we think about stress and about how we deal with it in our bodies and in our jobs. And um, we were so excited to talk to Amelia specifically too, because of this twin sisterdom that wrote the book, she is specifically at our intersection of the music industry, wellness, and being a woman in this industry. So um, it's almost like we get this special front seat to this research because we get to talk about, she, she tells us about her experience getting her doctorate in, in choral conducting and seeing how oh, like little girls holding their tummies in so they won't have large stomachs when they breathe and they sing. So teaching music, using music therapy as a tool to, you know, unlearn all of this stuff. It's just a fantastic conversation. Uh, so she she talks about the book, gives us some strategies that we can all start using today to start noticing burnout and ourselves and our bodies and our, our companies. Um, and yeah, it's just, oh, we can't wait for you to listen to it. We were so excited to have this. And we were both having kind of a weird day when we did this interview and we left it, I know, feeling <laughs> so much better it was like a therapy session literally oh if thank you so much amelia for your time we are endlessly grateful for you and emily's work in this world oh my goodness and there are moments in the episode where we call on you our listeners to dive into yourselves and follow along with the exercises that amelia presents in the book presents um for you to act on so we would love to hear from you 
whether you send us an email or you message us on social media or any of the above platforms about your experiences of just tapping into yourself and noticing what your body does when and if you start to burn out. So with that said, workshop it, enjoy it. And seriously, there's a little part about something called the mad woman in the attic. Tell us what yours is. I want to meet her. So, or it, or it's not, if it's not personified, Mm, another cool thing. Anyway, you'll love it. Dig it. Yeah. With that. ah! See you on the flip side. Enjoy. Hi, Amelia. Thank you so much for joining Swim Masters. We are honored to have you on the podcast this week. It is my pleasure. I'm so glad to be here. So let's start with your background. We'd love to just get to know you. And for high-level context for those listening in, you have a DMA in conducting but have worked in choral conducting for years in addition to your work as an author for Burnout. What work are you doing now and what inspired you to get into music and ultimately pursue it as a career? Well, it began that I'm aware consciously for me in the eighth grade when I would stand in my dad's like listening record room and I would play like the Andrew Lloyd Webber Requiem. This is so embarrassing, (laughs) but the Andrew Lloyd Webber Requiem and I would stand in front of the mirror waving my arms like conducting it. I love it. And something about (laughs) doing that. probably like a lot of people, no matter what, if it was playing their trumpet in the band or what, or rocking out on the guitar, like something just says yes to you in your body when you engage with music or whatever creation is your calling and you just feel it and you know. In retrospect, I have some theories about what exactly it was that my body was recognizing about how it was handling stress and emotion through the act of conducting fake conducting, you know what I mean? Um, And I, so in the eighth grade, I was like, I'm going to be a conductor. And that's it. And I made my decision. And I took all the music courses that my high school offered. And I got an undergraduate degree in music education. And I, I looked up what the path should be to become a conductor. And then I followed it. Like, (laughs) it took, it took until 2013. But I mean, from like 1989 to 2014, this was my life is becoming a conductor. Um, And uh, I was very lucky in 2013, getting an academic job is not as easy as it used to be. Uh, It used to be you have a doctorate, you get a job at a college, no problem. And uh, and, uh, I, I was really, really lucky. And I got a job at a university where I was the only full time music faculty, which I loved so much Um, because the kind of work I was doing at a university in that case was not conservatory style training, was not cranking out music majors with bachelors of music degrees to go become computer programmers. Like I was really doing work teaching people who love music, who study music and sing in choirs because they love it. They might do it for credit, but they might just be doing it because it's It's something that they really care about that makes them feel amazing. And by the time I had gotten through my doctorate, I had realized that the goals presented to me in my conservatory style training were not the goals I actually believed in. The whole becoming, you know, a a top flight, A-level college conservatory conductor and, you know, leading the next generation of, of singers and conductors within a context of the politics of music academia, I I didn't want to be part of that system. So I was thrilled to get a job where the music that was being taught at university level was not part of the system that perpetuates white supremacy and misogyny in the wider culture. Wow. That's amazing. So what yeah. I'm doing is, what I, <laughs> What I'm doing now is I have actually left that job. I am a COVID long hauler, so I am disabled and I can't work right now, not much. Uh, So I have left that job and I'm self-employed now. Uh, Emily and I are writing a workbook version of Burnout for people who want results and don't care about receipts. Uh, So that's the project that I'm working on now mostly. But that's, uh, yeah, mostly what I do is like lay in bed and go to physical therapy and speech therapy. And that's what I do now. 
Oh, oh my gosh. Well, and how is how your body relates to music? Because I one thing that stuck out stood out to me in that story, which I love, is that your your body at such an early age was like processing emotion through physicality and through yeah. that intersection with music. So one, that's beautiful, and exactly what you talk about in burnout as you process these cycles through movement. But so with all those changes, how are you? How has your relationship to processing emotion with music changed with all well, of this? It's hard to say. Um, mm -hmm. I was not remotely aware that that's what was happening early on in my career. Um, and about the time after my, like my, my fourth year teaching high school, when I was about 26, 27, I knew that something was missing from my conducting, but I didn't know what. And I got my master's degree at Westminster Choir College, which is probably the only place I could have learned what was missing because what was missing was so metaphysical and psychological yeah. and just about vulnerability and honesty. And um, I was very lucky to go to Westminster where I, I learned that piece that was missing. And then I kind of got music back at that point and I learned how it could really fill my soul and I was thrilled. And then I went to get my doctorate at a state land grant institution and I had been spoiled because at Westminster, it's not just a school, it's a school of thought. And uh, my doctoral program was not like that. It was very much about cranking everyone through the same requirements and mm -hmm. just getting the credits and having everyone sort of, you know, be cut to the same cookie cutter. And, uh, ooh, that was, that was unpleasant. Like, like I burned out twice. I, we, we write, we tell the story in the book how I was hospitalized twice with stress-induced illness because of my struggle to fit into that very standard cookie-cutter academic environment. Mm -hmm. Did I answer your question? I have lost track and forgotten what the question was. <laughs> Sorry. No, totally. That's okay. so powerful. And also how backwards that all of our schooling about this for something that is inherently supposed to be creative and unique is so... You know, I mean, we know it, that's how it is, but that that's what I was hearing as you were talking about that. It's just the, yeah. the fitting people in boxes ensures we will get no creativity and no, no originality if yes. everybody follows that and doesn't deprogram that. I was actually shocked when I started my doctorate and they put me on the podium and they really wanted me to like follow the rules and they weren't interested in my being, in my humanity, in what I had to offer to this piece of music. And I was like, that's the opposite of what music is. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I was, I, was, I was shocked when I went to my doctor program and, and learned that that's how they were treating music. Um, and it turns out that is actually the wider world of music. That's how it works. And I, oh, that's unfortunate. Right? Yep. Yeah. So got to change it. Got to do it. We'll all infiltrate. It's so interesting too, because being... I didn't major in music because I didn't want to hate music due to the way that they were teaching in yeah. college programs. Like I just, I knew that I was not going to be able to handle that, even though a minor was just as much as like a mini major as yeah it could be. And I watched a lot of people in my life really struggle with, being a music major and ultimately like leaving it because of the environment that these schools place them in. So it's really interesting that you were able to realize that earlier on. Uh, I didn't realize it early on. Like I, <laughs> or I was on, yeah. blind in my, in my undergrad, which was in the late nineties, I was totally blind to sexism and white yeah. supremacy. And I just, I didn't understand. I didn't know, um, you know, young, pe young people today are like <laughs> are really much more conscious of how the, of how the systems of oppression work than we were back in the nineties, at least me back in the nineties. <laughs> um, so that the first time I really encountered real professional sexism that made me stop and go, but, oh my God, this is happening. Cause I'm a, because I'm a, a woman. And I had never taken into consideration my femininity and how it impacted. I mean, I was, I mean, I had my, you know, goggles on and I was just headed down the trajectory. And when I was in my doctorate, it was the first time I actually experienced 
actual sexism that I could point to and be like, that was sexist. That thing that happened right there, my path is more difficult than a path of a man would be. And I honestly, I was in my 30s before I recognized that that was real. <laughs> mm-hmm. oh, wow. um, yeah. And the process of reconciling being in and part of that system and needing that system to give me its stamp of approval in order to achieve the goal I had set for myself in 1989 um, and applying the stuff that I had learned like at Westminster and my own music making that was just the opposite of that. That was about recognizing common humanity and, and, and valuing all kinds of music. Mm. And yeah, it, it was, I, I learned it in my, 30s and I really only learned how to handle the challenge of that after I was hospitalized with stress-induced illness which again is Mm -hmm. why we wrote the book is we wrote the book that I needed if 21 year old me had had the book burnout 21 year old me would have had a much easier life oh yeah well and I love that your goal you set out in the beginning and, and how that differed from what your doctoral program was telling you was the goal, right? Like that there's so much that I think in the music world, especially in creative creative pursuits like that, you you start with the purest intent of what you want to do with this. And then the machine kind of shows you, no, to do this, you have to do this and this and this, but it's all trying to you know tear that away. But there's so much internally that we have to do to change our definition of what that dream is. So like constantly as you're going, as you're being fed all these outside forces and stuff. And so I I imagine what you found that you were missing in your conducting was that like the, 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 the emotional connection to the music. And so I'm sure that did not come at all in your doctoral program. That was just after the. They, it was (laughs) the opposite. No, that was very much like the, what I discovered about making music up to about 2005, 2006 2007, like that far, my progression and development as a conductor was about more and more a lived truth and lived reality and an inspiration and a desire to create something that came from inside me. It was me and the composer like living together and, and boiling and making a stew that we had to like, you know, add all the ingredients of the other people performing with me. And it was very much a the the more personal and the more honest and the more care I put into it, the better it got. And uh, and then I got to my doctoral program, and they were like, "You need to do these composers and represent these time periods and communicate these messages and fulfill." Oh, just, just just jump through these hoops, and then you'll be a doctor. Like. <laughs> you're not interested in my artistry at all? (laughs) Like, I get that for a PhD, maybe artistry won't play into it as much, but this is a DMA. And I was actively discouraged from being artistic. That's so sad. Yeah. I don't like that. It sucked. (laughs) Yeah, it it literally put me in the hospital. It sucked that much. Oh my God. Well, I don't want people to be all discouraged because the good news is I, I, since 2013, that's when I finished my doctoral program, I have not burned out at all. I, I mean, it's been some of the hardest times socially, politically in America. And I have not even come close to burning out. I know now from going through that and learning so much in the process of writing the book, um, all of that, I think, saved my life. And it's going to keep me alive longer because I'm going to be healthier because I'm not living through all of, I'm not keeping all that stress inside me all the time. Like I always felt like I had to do in order to, you know, fit into the expectations. Yeah. Wow. Uh, well, yeah, because it's like a flash in the pan rather than the sustained long term, which is what yeah. cancer and all that stuff down the right. line. Like, oh, yeah. Those like long term insidious illnesses and stress can bring. Yeah. Absolutely wild. So dealing with it at the moment instead of letting it build up and turn into something that puts you in the hospital twice. Yeah. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. But and then like yeah. again, long term. So hopefully that's it. We kept you yeah. there. And then you're yeah. Good for now. <laughs> And the good news that you can even go back and heal the stuff from the past. You don't, it's not just like, well, you are where you are, but you can make it better from now on. You can, you can deal with and process everything that you've ever, you know, every incomplete stress response cycle that's ever been initiated. You can, you can handle. So great. So how are you, how are you now that you're not working there anymore? How are you processing all of these changes differently without that outlet? Um, that's, 
slightly complicated. Um, yeah. I do. I talk to a lot of creators who talk about creative burnout and they're, you know, they used to love their thing and they've lost their inspiration. And now they feel like, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't be doing it anymore. Um, but it is just true when the thing that feeds your soul starts to put food on your table, your relationship with it changes. Mm -hmm. When you're making it to teach others or to provide a service to others or to be measured by external standards because you are getting paid for it. So like that's your job is to do that. It It is not going to have the same value to you as a means of, you know, purging all of your feelings. Uh, so it is just true that when you are professional, th that thing is no longer going to be consistent and reliable as your way of managing your feelings. Um, Ever since always, I was going to like set a date on it, but no, it's ever since always <laughs> that I started teaching in the late 90s. The act of conducting is an act of service to your students, to your singers. Um, and so that leadership, that place of leadership is, it feels so good for me. Um, but it is not the same as just like freely, wildly waving my arms mm -hmm. in the mirror as an eighth grader. Mm -hmm. um, and the, so I do really recommend that musicians or creators of any kind find something that they're bad at that also sparks that kind of childlike woo in them. Um, so I do think that professional musicians need to have a hobby. And most of the musicians I know who are working, gigging professionals really love cooking or knitting. And there's something else that they do where they can put their feelings because, you know, when you're paid to sing a role in an opera, you you can't put all your feelings in there. You have to put the ones the director tells you to put. Mm -hmm. um, so you need another outlet because you're, you know, limited slightly. Um, I horseback ride. I'm terrible at it. It can never become a side hustle, which is a key <laughs> to, the <Perfect>. second, <laughs> to the second opportunity is it has to be something you're kind of bad at. Um, yeah. So find something else is what I recommend for people. Oh, I love that. I need to get back into horseback riding. I did that when I was in like middle school and then I got afraid of jumping and yeah. I stopped. But now I ride yeah. a motorcycle. I think it's the same part of me. <laughs> Here's what they don't tell you in school is that you don't have to progress. You don't have to learn. You don't have yeah. to challenge yourself. You don't have yeah. to be ambitious. You can just go can and trot do the fun part yeah. and be like, <laughs> no, I don't, I don't want to do jumping. No, no, thank you. Like I'll, I'll sit in a half seat and trot over some poles on the ground that might be as far as I'll Love go, it. but like, <laughs> you don't have to be ambitious. You can just do something you like and be done. Yes. Amazing. Okay. We should probably talk about the book. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Maybe. Maybe. Oh, I would. So. That was amazing. Let's talk about burnout. And we've referenced this book many times on this podcast. And like we said to you before we started, this has really changed our lives. So, um, can you give listeners who haven't dug in yet a little bit of background about how this book came to be and its mission? Yeah, uh, it came to be because I have an identical twin sister named Emily Nagoski, who is kind of a big deal. Um, she had already written a New York Times bestselling book uh, called Come As You Are, The Surprising New Science That Will Transform Your Sex Life. Yeah, she has a she's a PhD from Indiana University in health behavior, and her specialty is in, uh, you know, the science of women's sexuality. Uh, and she wrote this book about the science of women's sexuality and went around promoting it, talking to women all over the world. And they would keep coming up to her after her talks and saying, yeah, yeah, that sex science is great, Emily. Thanks for that. But you know what really made a difference for me is that like half a chapter about feelings and, you know, processing your stress. That's what really made a difference. And she told me about it. She's like, I'm so surprised that this is what the women value from the book. And I reminded her that I had had to learn that. Well, first of all, I learned it in my conservatory training where you specifically learn about feelings and expressing something inner true about you know, what's going on inside you for the purposes of stage to communicate what the composer had in mind or the director. Um, but that does, so it is a teachable skill, but that doesn't mean that once you've learned it in one context that you will use it in the rest of your day-to-day -day living. Uh, and Emily kind of had to teach me that through the science of what she had put in that half a chapter. Uh, and it saved my life, you know, twice. So I reminded her of that and she said, oh, we should write a book about that. <laughs> it's called Burnout. 
Yes. Now, thank God. (laughs) Now, I also have a New York Times bestselling book, so it's only fair that we're twins and we both we both have can cite that as credit. I love it. So in the book, and this is something that Stephanie and I really found fascinating, was the difference between human givers and human beings. And it's so important to stress that being a human giver is good. And the ideal is not to be all human beings, but to be giving to each other and filling each other up equally. Yeah. So could you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah. Who are the human beings yeah. and the human givers? Yeah. And how is this this framework we can use to, to yeah, think we, about us? Yeah, we, we love this as soon as we found it. It comes from a book uh, called Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny by a moral philosopher named Kate Mann. Mm. Uh, in her book, because she's a moral philosopher, she posits a world where there are two kinds of people. The human beings who have a moral obligation to be their humanity, to live it, to express it, to acquire whatever resources are necessary in order to do that. And the other group of people are the human givers who have a moral obligation to give their time, their lives, their bodies, their very selves to the human beings uh, so that they can fulfill their moral obligation of being their humanity. And uh, the sense of entitlement that human beings have to the resources all around them that belong to the givers uh, is inherent in this dynamic. And if you're going to calculate a way to burn out half the population, this is how to do it. And you can probably tell from the title of the book that uh, it's called The Logic of Misogyny. Yeah, it's the subtitle. So yes, she does intend to illustrate that the human beings in this case are men and the human givers socialized to have a moral obligation to give to others are women. And, you know, you probably could have guessed that because it does feel like this cartoonish stereotype truth. And in fact, it is, of course, it's much more nuanced than this. And, you know, she's a moral philosopher. She does nuance. But this is the cartoon black and white version. Um, I mean, Emily and I are are each married to a, you know, cishet white dude who is a natural giver. My my husband is actually an accompanist, a, a pianist who specializes in collaborative piano. And he is just that skill that he has to follow and to intuit and to be there with you in your state is not just a thing he does at the keyboard. That's like part of who he is. He is a giver, supportive and caring. And I also as a giver, like we give back to each other. So it's not a dynamic where either one of us slips through the cracks because um, somebody's always there to, and that's how, that's the dynamic. That's actually a long-term, the cure for burnout is all of us caring for each other. Um, it comes from the book Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny, but of course this also is a dynamic that takes place uh, at every intersection of oppression. So the able-bodied have this expectation that disabled people are going to like smile and be nice and friendly and not ask anything of them uh, that's out of their, their the able-bodied person's comfort zone. Um, white people do it to people of color. Native citizens do it to immigrants. English speakers where the dominant language is English do it to people who are not native English speak. You know, like at every intersection of oppression, this power dynamic happens where one population feels entitled to the time and lives and bodies of of people around them who they see subconsciously they've been taught by the, you know, white supremacist, cishet, normative, exploitative, late capitalistic patriarchy, that they are entitled to something from that other group who are somehow magically lesser. How did that happen? We don't know, but there it is. Well, we do know the answer is history. uh, Yeah. And like, isn't eugenics that evil, evil science about that, right? Is that the name for that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The when you specifically get into like, let's breed humans so there are no failures. <sighs> Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, but, but I oh, mean, it God. also extends to people who like look at immigrants. You know, like an old lady immigrant, like, well, she's not giving anything back to society. Why is she allowed here? Like, I've actually mm-hmm. had this conversation with people, and I'm like, probably her family 
are glad that she's here and they love her and they value her, right? Like (laughs) this is a person who provides something anyway. Well, just inherent value from existing, right? Like human inherent value. Yeah. Just a person and therefore valuable. Like, (laughs) so like it can, it of course goes all the way to the extreme of, of eugenics and let's only allow people to live who fit this very narrow culturally constructed ideal. Um, whiteness and thinness and 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 straightness and able-bodiedness and richness and et cetera, et cetera. And if any part of you does not 100% conform with that, I mean, it's happening with um, uh, scientific weightism is the mm-hmm. label for when physicians are trained in a system that lies to them and tells them that health is directly associated with your weight, which is just not true. That's just not true. There's no actual evidence that a very wide range of weights is, you can be perfectly healthy. Um, so like even in, when it came down to COVID cases and they were running out of ventilators, if you are a fat person, you are less likely to get put on a ventilator and have your life saved than a thin person with, you know, not taking into account cardiovascular health or, you know, like, so I'm just, yeah, the system doesn't, it's not just women. It's not just people of color, people of like. It's every intersection of oppression. I feel like I've gone on kind of a tangent. <laughs> no, but it's Sorry. perfect because I think what we all need to do is is take that because it's so nuanced. You can never be like these are the ten ways we see it. Like everybody, ideally listening to this, can take it to their product company or their label they're working for, anything, and be like, how does this apply to the business I'm in? How has it affected me in this hierarchy? If I'm at a hierarchical company or if I'm freelance, how has that affected me? Even it'll be yeah. so different. It's all Are there any companies that aren't and- hierarchical? No, because even I guess if you're a freelance person, you're still contracting for a hierarchical company and therefore are now in the hierarchy. So there's right. no really yeah. way to escape that. Yeah. And this is why we call it exploitative capitalistic yeah. patriarchy, because unfortunately, that system of hierarchical patriarchy uh, empowers the people who are above you in the hierarchy to exploit you. I mean, they are rewarded for taking advantage, for being beings who absorb all of what you have to offer and feel no obligation to give anything back, they are rewarded for sucking you dry. And if you don't agree to allow them to exploit you, you might get nothing. You might have no other opportunities. Or if you are playing by the rules, but you see that somebody else is being exploited. Um, If you say anything about that or try to stand up for them, again, you might actually get punished professionally. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is such a downer, but I really do. There are solutions. Should we talk about solutions? Yeah. Well, I guess that's part B to this, right? <laughs> yeah, so yeah, one, yeah. yeah, what do we, well, and in that though, so I think, well, I don't want to miss there. I don't want to make sure we didn't miss anything, but well, yeah. and so with that though, that what, what I think is a natural occurrence to that. So knowing we'll face this, what are, how do we notice when we're facing it? And like, even down to the physicality, which is what we're saying is one thing that we really loved about the book is like, this, it is, it all ties to physical things. So whether this is happening in your workplace, it's going to affect your body and all that. So noticing when it's happening will probably come from your body first. So can you talk about the like fight or flight or freeze response that you feel when something is happening? So people can start to notice this in their own selves. Our bodies evolved to have a fight or flight response um, to things that had teeth and claws and can run 30 miles an hour. That is, in the environment of evolutionary adaptiveness, the kind of stressor that fight, flight, and freeze developed in order to save our lives. So when we see, like, a lion, your body floods with neurotransmitters and electrical signals, you know, cortisol and glucocorticoids and adrenaline and prepares every system in your body to save your life, right? So your heart starts pumping. Of course, we all notice that. Um, Your breath gets deeper and faster. We all notice that. We might not notice the changes to our blood flow. We might feel like a tingle, but Mm -hmm. what's happening is that your blood draws away from the surface of your skin so that if you get cut, you're not going to bleed to death as fast. Um, We probably... You might notice butterflies in your stomach. What that is is your digestive system saying, we don't need to work at full capacity right now because who cares about digestion when you get eaten by that lion, right? We got to save our lives. Your immune system's like, 
let's not worry about malaria for a hot second because we need to escape this lion. So your immune system's like, never mind, I'm getting out of the way. Reproductive system, who cares about babies? If you don't escape this lion, there will be no babies anyway, right? So every system in our body gets affected in ways that we can observe, but also in ways that well, we might not notice at all, ever. And the problem is that in today's world, we very rarely get chased by lions. And instead, the things that cause the stress response are existential, money, family, relationships, deadlines, schedules, traffic. I feel like I'm talking about bad, uncomfortable things and stressing people out again. You know very well what, th what your stressors are. And you know that running away from it is not going to solve the problem. Most of our stressors can be solved by smiling and being patient and taking our turn and filling out the form and waiting on hold, which is the opposite of fight or flight, right? <laughs> it's, it's, so we end up having the stress response and all those, you know, adrenaline, cortisol, glucocorticoids, oh my, end up pumping through. They have nowhere to go and they get just like stored in your body somewhere and uh, in the long term can cause disease. Um, for example, the thing about your uh, blood vessels, when your heart pumps really hard, that is not what your blood vessels are designed to handle long term. Your blood vessels are designed to handle a gently flowing stream. <laughs> but when your heart starts racing because there's a lion, it gets like the fire hose turned on. Mm -hmm. um, and if this happens once for 10 minutes, and then you have a week of not having that response again, that's plenty of time for your blood vessels to heal and to return to normal, and it's perfectly safe. However, when the ongoing stressors of harassment and discrimination and microaggressions and your kids won't put their shoes on and, oh my God, I forgot to pay the electric bill, when that keeps happening ongoing over and over... Your body is preparing you for fight or flight. Your heart race is pounding and your blood vessels are not designed to that to do that and never have a chance to heal. So that's how scars uh, or damage is done to your blood vessels. And those are places where plaques develop. And this is how stress gives people heart attacks, right? Um, it is a physical process that is physically damaging your body. And unfortunately, there's no like single symptom you can look for to be like, are you too stressed? Because <laughs> everybody's body is going to put the stress in a different place. It might be your heart. It might be your digestion. It might be your reproductive system. Um, but when they keep saying, oh, stress causes X, Y, and Z disease. Yeah. Stress can lead to any disease because it literally affects every system in your body. Mm -hmm. But the good news is that we can deal with the stress itself in a separate process from dealing with the thing that causes our stress, which is very good news because it means that even while the stressor is still there, even while the pandemic is still going on and we can't solve that, we can't get rid of that by ourselves, uh, we can still be dealing with the stress that it causes so we can feel better before this problem is solved. It's also good news because when the problem goes away, um, you may not have actually dealt with the stress in your body. Just because you solve the problem doesn't mean that you've handled the stress in your body, but you can still do that, which means that stuff from long ago that stressed you out and may have caused damage, you can repair that. You can dig it up and complete those stress response cycles too. I think that's really, it. it's so fascinating. And you and your sister specifically spoke about this in Brene Brown's podcast about how like emotions and feelings are a tunnel and you have to go through the tunnel in order yeah. to finish whatever the emotion is. And like stress is also in that same category. It's so, an emotion. It's a tunnel. Yeah. yeah. So mm -hmm. I think that is really important for people to understand as well, because but you have to get to the other side in order to come out. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Because stress itself is not a problem. Your body is designed to handle stress. Uh, the problem is when we get stuck. You know, emotions are... So the, the whole saying that Emily says in like every TED talk she's given is emotions are tunnels. You have to find your way through all the way through the darkness to get to the light at the end. Um, and 
stress being an emotion has a cycle, a tunnel. You can get all the way to the end. But when you get stuck is where the problem is. All your body is made of is cycles. Your circulatory system, your reproductive system, it all happens in cycles. And eat like digestion, for example. Yet you consume the food, you digest the food, the food leaves, <laughs> and any point in that cycle gets interrupted or is blocked or incomplete, you are in trouble. Yeah, bad things result. And the same thing is true with stress as a cycle. If any part of the system gets blocked and can't complete, you end up with problems. Uh, the good news is that there are lots of ways to complete the stress response cycle, not just literal fight or flight, but you know, making music in a way that's engaged with you personally and practically and and your actual motivation to make that music, that can complete the stress response cycle, connecting with other people you love and care about and trust, or even just a, a friendly interaction with your barista is enough to remind your body that it is safe. Because um, completing the stress response cycle is about letting your body know that it can escape. It is not stuck. It is free and and able to make itself calm again. Yeah. Yes. My favorite is I become the gazelle and I just shake. Like do the like, just shake it out. That's my favorite. Like I just, yeah. that's ugh, that's what my body, I mean, I guess it's like a Band-Aid, right? It's like the the deal with it now so I can do it later and I actually have to deal with the thing later. But like. Yes. <sighs> that, that is a very smart approach to it. Like, let me just deal with these feelings now yep, shake and it then out. I'll go deal with the problem because <laughs> I'll be in a better mental state in order to deal with the problem. I, won't, I mean, one of the things that happens when you're stressed is that your mind gives you tunnel vision because you don't, when you're running away from the lion, you don't need to see the big picture. You don't need to know context. You don't need to understand the connection to the universe. You just need to solve this problem. So we get this sense when we're all, when we're chronically stressed, we get this sense that we are alone, that our work doesn't mean anything anymore. And that is coming from a biological change that your body makes on purpose in order to protect you. Oh my God. It's amazing. <laughs> that is not a good state of mind in which to approach like long-term change for anybody anywhere. So if you need to get like, shake it out, like go for a run or just have a big old cry or, you know, sing a loud song or whatever you got to do that makes you understand the feeling of like, okay, I am safe. Not just telling yourself, but uh, doing a thing with your body that tells it that it is safe. Just tensing every muscle from head to toe until you feel like you're squeezing out all the lemon juice out your toes. And then you want to let go, but you're not going to let go. And you hold it one more second and then you oh, let go. A physical change. You can feel the shift. And that is how you know that your body has undergone a conclusion to a cycle is that feeling of I've escaped. I am free. I'm alive. The sun shines a little brighter. You love your friends and family. You're ready for anything. <laughs> um, anything that gives you that feeling, a big old cry where you feel like, oh, you just ridiculous laughter and incredibly funny thing. Oh, and you just feel like kind of lighter at the end. That feeling, whatever does that can open the tunnel vision, can relax wherever the acid has built up. And, and you know, then your body is safe and then you're in a better state of mind to deal with the thing. So when they say, have a good cry, it, you'll feel better. That used to feel so patronizing to me, but it's just, it's just valid. It's yeah. just real. It's, it's true. just like a prescription. It's an act yeah. you can do. It's as real and as like tense. A hundred percent. And um, like uh, they also say, sleep on it. You'll feel better in the morning. Again, that always felt dismissive to me because the problem wasn't going away overnight. Mm -hmm. So why would it be better in the morning? Well, it's better in the morning because during REM sleep, my body has processed all the feelings <laughs> about it and I wake up and, oh yeah, I uh, feel better and therefore I'm in a better state to handle whatever the thing was that initiated the stress response. Yeah. Well, and even in that, that's like a celebration of that feeling is good and human giving is good and you don't need to shut that off in order right. to function and be a really uh i don't know fulfilled member of society like these are just the things that we must do to continue being these loud feelingy emotional vulnerable selves and do this well because I, I keep thinking of that this this work we do in the music industry and in music education and the nonprofit side of it it's all so mission driven and the way to make no change is to get to this place of that your work is meaningless that you are alone 
that you are just so and all of I, I would venture to say most of the people working in this corner of the industry are very empathic, very open to being vulnerable, really wanting to make these changes. And so these are these are invaluable skills that we all need to be learning as we go through this to deal with the work we've chosen. Yeah. And I invite, (laughs) I I invite our, like everyone listening to like really pay attention throughout the week to like, see like what your body is doing. If you're stressed or like, think, think about what we're talking about and see if you can actually apply it. And I'm going to tell you why this is such a great idea uh, is because a lot of us are trained from very young, in America in particular, not to trust what our bodies tell us, to think that when you say, listen to your body, it sounds like all hippie, woo-woo, touchy-feely nothingness, but what we should trust is like some company who wants to sell us a pill, the the physician who has the degree, who learned about bodies. Well, he didn't learn about your body. You're the one who knows about your body. And so we are trained and even shamed out of noticing our own physical sensations and especially our emotional sensations. Um, So it's hard for people to listen to their body. Emily and I actually did a three-part, five-part series on the podcast she made called Feminist Survival Project. Mm. It's about how to listen to your body. So if that feels like a hard thing for you, it, it's kind of basic and 101. Emily was like, why do we need to do this? Because this is all very easy for her. <laughs> she intuited it from the from being a child. She knew oh. how to listen to her body. And I never did. <laughs> I had to learn it like in an academic setting and be taught. So the, the, the series in the Feminist Survival Project about listening to your body is the process I went through to learn how to listen to my body. But going back to why you saying it on the podcast is such a great idea is because no matter how good you are at listening to your body, you are always being reminded by media and everything you see that your body is not telling you the truth and that there's a there's an external goal you should be aspiring toward and that certain kinds of pain don't matter. So you reminding listeners, hey, your, your pain matters, your feelings matter, your joy matters, your body is telling you the truth, you can trust what you feel to be, uh, you know, valid and real. Uh, as long as people know that emotions, ha- having an emotion is not dangerous or harmful, it might feel uncomfortable, but they can never be wounded by feeling angry. They can never be wounded by feeling sad. Um, as long as long as they let themselves go through the cycle, mm-hmm. what makes that especially safe is if there's someone there in the tunnel with you. Sometimes you need somebody at the end of the tunnel to be like, "Come on out." <laughs> but sometimes you need somebody like uh, like sadness in, yeah. in in out. She goes to sit next to Bing Bong, and Steve he just there. wants to be sad, <laughs> and she's just sad with him. Like that makes feeling those feelings safe. Uh, somebody just there with you, but also someone like you to say on a podcast, hey, notice your own body, notice your own feelings. They're valid and they're more important and more trustworthy than some external goal that's set for you by mysterious sources that are probably trying to exploit you. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You're part of the solution. Yay. It's the sh- so the sh- powerful. <laughs> the shortcut version of that is that the cure for burnout is not self-care. It's all of us caring for each other. Because mm. there's mm. no way we as individuals resist the outside messages. There's no way we do that alone. The only way we do that is by surrounding ourselves with a bubble of love of people who care about us as much as we care about them so that we are all giving and sharing with each other. It's the first thing you um, pointed out in the, on this episode is like, this is the most important thing for the book is the having this bubble of love around you and all of us giving and sharing with each other so that nobody slips through the cracks and nobody burns out because nobody is has a moral obligation to give their time, their lives, their bodies, Bodies, their wellness on the altar of anyone else's convenience. Yeah. Mic drop. <laughs> Boom. Boom. Yeah. Rewind <laughs> and listen to that again. Um, can you, as, as like a hopeful end to this or not end to, but just this train of thought, like, can you tell that story of the, the little girls in the choir too? Because I think that yeah. so encapsulates how we can take this and give it to the next generation and train this out of yeah. our new little musical yeah. humans. This is the thing I had noticed at college level and high school level, of course, 
but I was teaching, it was just a few years ago, like an elementary school choir, nine-year-olds, eight-year-olds. And, you know, I'm teaching them how to breathe for singing. You take a nice big breath. It goes down deep in your belly. You know, you haven't imagined it a lot of ways. Like you're wearing a belt covered in noses and your belt inhales and your whole belly gets bigger when you inhale and you do all kinds of physical things to let them do this. And it just, nothing was working. They were inhaling and their stomachs were tight and it was going up in their shoulders. And it occurred to me, they were, they were keeping their bellies tight because they thought you're supposed to have like fat, firm, firm, rock hard abs. They thought that they were supposed to hold their bellies in all the time. <laughs> and so I, I had to teach them out loud, your belly's not supposed to be flat. You're, it's supposed to be round. It's supposed to be flexible. And even at that very young age, children are already learning that there's their body's supposed to be constricted. It's supposed to be limited in its size and shape and therefore in its capacity. And uh, when they learn to let go and breathe and they feel permission, like, oh, oh, I'm supposed to do that thing that feels so good. I'm not supposed to be uncomfortable all the time. <gasps> Who knew? Their singing gets better, of course, but, you know, it gives them permission to question what they have learned from, you know, the uber culture where they have picked up this message. It's everything. It bleeds into everything. And how powerful that through music education, we're not changing just that, which we know of, of like, the, you know, there's how the brains develop and everything. We already know that. But it's really rad to be reminded of those emotional things that we are changing to through something as little as teachings. And it's not little, but it, it, it feels like just a part of a lesson probably, right, to you. But then you, you zoom out and you're like, no, this is a foundational skill that now like to breathe and to process like that. And so that is, that's, that's a huge yeah. power that music educators have. And to breathe bodily, also. you're teaching them, but also to question mm -hmm. what they have learned from any source. And yes. also then to use that skill to create something that they're interested in, that they love, that's fun for them. Uh, and also then to use that skill to be part of something larger than themselves. Yes. Um, Yes, I you obviously you're preaching to the choir when it comes to music education, uh, literally. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, that was really good. Um, that was corny for life. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, uh, but yeah, no, it is it is amazing the things that music actually teaches and the good it does for people, for their bodily health, for their mental health. The thing when I was teaching college, the thing I taught most explicitly. I mean, there's notes and rhythms, but the thing I taught my college singers most explicitly was to pay attention to what they're doing while they're doing it and not mm. let their minds wander while their voices just go through the motions. Like that skill alone is worth music class because yeah. that's going to that's gonna save lives when they're driving on the road, right? It's going to make them better partners, better communicators uh, when they enter long-term relationships. But yeah, there's a lot you learn when you make music. <laughs> music, music is the whole world. Therefore, yes. when you make music, you participate in everything that oh. the world and humanity has to offer. Yes. Yeah. It's so worth doing. I was we did an event in um on this really rad uh, uh synth pioneer guy, Don Lewis from the 80s. He's a Bay Area guy, but he at the end he was saying how like creation is a wiggle and the sound that music is is a wiggle. And so and he like music quite literally is the energy that we're all built on. It is all creation. Like what a, what an amazing yes. thing we all are in, right? Yes. Like, oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, the Greeks nailed it. They called it the music of the spheres, that yes. music is the harmony inside your cells and between your muscles and among people in a society and then between nations and the whole universe. That's, that's, that harmony is what we create when we make music. Uh, yeah, it's so good. It's good for the world. And the so soul. no one stop. We just process all these feelings and keep on going. Yeah. <laughs> no one stop. <laughs> Another thing we say in the book is that wellness is not a state of mind or a state of being. Wellness is a state of action. <gasps> wellness is the freedom to oscillate through all the cycles of being human. So yes, be stressed and then cycle out of stress into a feeling of safety and then cycle uh, into effort and then back into rest and then into eating and then digesting and the autonomy and then connection. We're meant to not be in one state all the time. It's, we're meant to, that wiggle, that vibration happens at every level within our, you know, 
atoms and our cells and our muscles and our feelings and our bodily cycles and our relationships with other people and our existence in the world as professionals and as members of the community, et cetera. And so it's, yeah, it, it goes on infinitely. Oh, I love it. Steph, should we talk about the mad woman in the attic? Yeah, I think that's a good bring it on home. And then we can, yeah. we can. This is the last chapter in the book because it, I think it's the hardest thing to do. It's huge. Yeah. And it changes. Yeah. It's a, okay, anyway. So, okay, we should, we should say what it is before, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> so, what is the mad woman in the attic? And I, I think we should, the way Steph and I kind of wrote these questions out, is I think we should all share our mad woman in the attic. So, can you- Yeah, that's a great idea. Can you explain what the mad woman in the attic is, and can you introduce us to yours so that our listeners can dig into their own, and then Steph yeah. and I will do the same. The Mad Woman in the Attic uh, is a literary trope. It comes from Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte, where uh, Jane Eyre is a governess in the house of Mr. Rochester, and Mr. Rochester has, spoiler alert, a mad woman in his attic. And (laughs) no, don't we all? Like, me too, girl. Um, So it's the symbol of the, the part of your brain, the process in your mind that's trying to handle the gap between who you are and who the world expects you to be. So the world says you need to be this, and you're like, oh, but I'm actually this. And so the mad woman's job is to either blame the world for having dumb expectations that are unrealistic and invalid, or blame you for not being good enough or smart enough or deserving enough. And that's a necessary part of your mind that develops pretty early. Um, and a lot of people, it manifests as a, like a self-critical voice that that kind of berating thing. And uh, uh, Amy Poehler writes about it in her uh, book, Yes, Please. And in her audiobook version, it's voiced by Kathleen Turner. Like, all oh kind of like gosh. throaty. And <laughs> it's <sighs> really funny. Yeah. Uh, so it's that voice in your head, that kind of mean girl next door that you feel like lives in you and, and yells at you. For Emily, it is very literally personified as Teka the lava monster from Moana, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so when Emily gets that feeling of like, she screwed something up and it's her fault and she's done everything she can to make up for it, but she's still carrying around that feeling of, oh, I'm a terrible person. That's her mad woman, Teka, like if emerging out of the volcano and telling her that she blah, blah, blah. So this, the um kind of, Instagram sort of advice for that is to ignore <laughs> that self-critical voice. You don't need that negativity in your life. Well, except that that's not a person outside of you that you can just like end your relationship with. This is a part of your mind. It is a part of you. It It is you. And you don't want to just ignore you. Like, how would you want to treat you if you were upset? You, you turn toward that voice with kindness and compassion and listen to what they have to say and they're saying you don't deserve love and you'll die alone and you're not good enough and you don't belong this and you don't deserve that and you go wow i'm 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 hearing what you're saying um what makes you think these things are true and then you learn that behind that criticism and wrath is fear and vulnerability and uh it makes sense because your your mad woman is trying to help you fit in to belong, which deep down at a biological level, we are a hive species. Humans are 90% chimp, 10% bee, that's Jonathan <laughs> Haidt says. We are a herd species. And where's the safest place to be in the herd? The middle. If you are on the fringes, you are more in danger. And the mad woman is trying to protect you. You need to fit in in order to be protected, in order to be safe. So, you know, you turn toward her and you listen to what she has to say and you let her know that you understand and you're grateful for her help, but she's dealing with a very difficult job and it's making her out of touch with reality. (laughs) And you are in touch with reality as the person who is in charge here and you're going to protect her and take care of her. And she doesn't, you don't need her to be freaking out all the time. She can relax. It's okay. Um, but you do have to do that, you know, kind of every time you hear her, it's not a less, it's not a one and done. And now my mad woman is going to be quiet. No, she's going to keep coming back because you're going to keep confronting differences between who you are and who the world expects you to be. My mad woman, um, is not a personification for 
most people, the overwhelming majority of people, they feel like there's a voice or a person. For me, I get a physical sensation of um, vertigo Mm -hmm. and I get a flash, like a vision in my mind of this uh, dream I've had my whole life since I was a toddler of like two little dust balls, a little one and a big one. And they're kind of like pushing against each other. So cool. I have a vision wow. and a physical sensation. And it's, and all I have to do is re- notice, oh, I'm having this sensation because that's the, that's the mad woman. That's because there's a gap between who I am and who the world expects me to be. And, uh, and, uh, that's just a natural thing. And it, it sort of takes care of itself. Yeah, noting it, and then it yeah goes yeah. to sleep again. Oh, yeah. I must say, if yours, Natalie, yours, you said yours was a feeling this morning when we were talking. Well, about yeah, because I'm literally living it right now. <laughs> <laughs> Not right now in this like current conversation, um, but I'm dealing with a mouse, no, a mice problem, and that is like my fear. <laughs> And I do not do well in these situations. And mine, I feel as if I've lost control. Like there's no way for me to like the little mad woman is like, I'm you've lost control. This is me over exaggerating everything. And that's mine. And then also like your insecurities when they start to come out a little bit more like She's like sitting there being like, you did something wrong. You're not good enough. Like all of that, like I think is all wrapped into this person. Yeah. So have you had a chance to try like turning toward it and being like, I hear you. I know what this is. Like, I'm not going to reject you. I accept the message you have to give for me. Sometimes I think I need to do that more so with this problem I'm dealing with. I'm running from it right now. (laughs) (laughs) But like in that instance, it's a physical thing, and that is yeah. something you can run from. <laughs> yeah, and it is, and it is hard to do most of the time. What it looks like when you actually turn toward the mad woman for me and for Emily and for a lot of people as you turn toward it, it looks like from the outside you're just sitting there crying. <laughs> <laughs> like, that was me. That's just what it's like. Oh man, it's. It's hard to do. I'm not claiming that this is an easy thing. Of course, people would rather just like, oh, ignore that critical voice. You don't need that negativity. Of course, that's the advice people want to give. It's the advice people want to follow because it's so much easier than confronting this like vulnerable, hurt part of yourself that that wants to blame you or the world for for badness instead of just like accepting that the world is a place of good and evil and that we live in the intersection of the two. Yeah. It's so funny that's, that that's hard. it's so funny that you say that because there's a TikTok that's been going around saying like I forget exactly what it is, but I'm I'm picturing like have you confronted your mad woman? I'm being I'm thinking of this trend where they're like, well, thank you for giving that information to me. I will definitely take that into consideration. (laughs) Kind of of moment. So I feel like that's very similar. And I feel like I need to turn to my mad woman and be like, thank you. I I accept the information that you're providing me, Mm -hmm. but I'm moving along. (laughs) That is a fantastic step one. Step one two. That is awesome. Step two will be Thank you for the information. Let's talk about why. And you kind of yeah. become a therapist to your mad woman, yeah. like, or or a mother. You, like, you you care about how they feel, and so you, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but that thank you for the information. That neutral receiving is mm. even that is hard. So, love it. Rock on. That's good. Thanks. We believe Keep it in up. you. Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks. Hey, Steph, what's yours? <laughs> My well, and I just had a new brain blast about this this morning. That like. As I said, it evolves. Like mine used, I used to think it was, mine's very personified. Like the little middle school me, little Steph that felt just gross in her body and didn't want to feel stupid or be seen as stupid. I wasn't good at traditional schooling and all that. But what I hit, what hit me this morning was that's not my mad woman. That is the me that I was, I don't know, like that's the, the cultural message rather than the me responding to the message. So I was like, oh my God, who's the me responding to the message? And she's just this like banshee, like roaming around the hills of Ireland screaming, like just like, like just, and then, but then I thought I've, I've done a lot of work over the years and not thinking about it like this, like turning toward that being like, all right, we're good. We're good. Like you, you mm-hmm. serve a purpose. I see why you're like this. I see why yeah. you're fight or flighting while you're a little wild animal right now. And like, I have been in moments where 
I take that and it's like used for like, I'm able to embody that in a good way. And like, she becomes this like, like witch goddess, like just in tune with the body, just like pagan queen, like just, I don't know. So it, it's, it's interesting that now I can look back after trying to look at the intersection of these, you know, feeling that way, getting to a healthy place of power. And she changes depending on where I'm at and like the level of health I am with this feeling. And there's the two sides where, which I think was also inspired by like the Tikka Moana thing, but it's not necessarily that like big fiery power. Mine's just like screaming in the wilderness and then, or yeah. she's like in control of her screaming in the wilderness and like yeah. you know, dancing through the woods. So, but it's so freeing to like personify that. And yeah, like, I see that pattern in myself. Yes. And it's usable. You are, this is the first Madwoman story I've heard where the Madwoman goes from like just ragey and angry, which is a hallmark Madwoman trait, to strong. Every other story I've heard about where there's a personified Madwoman, she starts as this like really ragey, angry being who then turns out to be this kind of fearful vulnerable, innocent, small thing underneath. Mm -hmm. um, so that's interesting. It's just new to me. Yeah, it's weird. I don't know. And it's and it changes, but that's cool. That yes, that's it's different. it's almost certainly gonna change throughout your life. Yeah. Like oh, yeah. Teka was not Emily's uh, mad woman until she saw Moana. Oh. And then she saw Moana <laughs> and she was like, it me. Her, her. Yes, yes. <laughs> that's it. Uh, but it's oh, it's so healthy and it's so powerful though to I don't know, to even think to to be able to personify and not even personify, but but just note in that way so you have something to think about and to right. have a relationship with. Too. Yeah, that critical voice in your head is not something you either have to ignore or have to listen to, but it is something you will benefit from having a relationship with that yes. is non-judgmental. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. By the way, if somebody wants to look up the science on this, this is all self-compassion research, which is led by Kristen Neff. Uh, I think it's Kristen with a K, Neff with two Fs, like Jeff. Um, and uh, yeah, you can look up her stuff online. It's the best self-compassion stuff ever. Yes. We just talk about one sliver of it in the book. So amazing. Well, uh, Amelia, thank you so much for this thank conversation, you. Thank you, thank you. for this book. I love it. Mm -hmm. Thank you for talking about the music industry in this way, because it's, I think, going to change the world. If the music industry can change and shape itself to be more inclusive, to be more generous uh, and giving to the people who participate in it, um, music is everything. So I think if the music industry can change, then it can change the rest of the world. Here, here. Woo. Thank you so much again, Amelia. Thanks for listening to this episode of Swim Masters. Don't forget to follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn to stay up to date on all new things swim. We'd love it if you could share and leave us a review. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at smartwomeninmusic.org. This episode was co-produced and edited by Stephanie Lamond, Natalie Morrison, and Julia Olson. See you next time.